My name is Alex Kashuta, and this is the Subversive Podcast. It's an excuse for me to talk to some of the most interesting people on the heterodox to heretic spectrum. Everyone from iconoclast philosophers to rogue scientists to real post-BuzzFeed journalists and our true intellectual elite, Twitter anonymous accounts. In short, they're quite subversive. Enjoy. Today, I'm joined by Amy Wax. Um, Amy Wax is an American lawyer, a neurologist, and academic at the University of Pennsylvania Law School. Um, welcome. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for coming on. Um, you've been a, kind of a, a controversial subject uh, in, in, in some circles recently. You are in a, currently in a dispute with uh, Penn Law School, as far as I understand. Um, what what is this dispute about? Just be, if people have don't know about this, because I'm sure a big chunk of my audience knows what this is about, but I would just like to catch everyone, you know, the stragglers up to what exactly the the matter of this dispute is, and then we can move from there. Well, I'm not in a dispute with Penn Law; they're in a dispute with me. So all the disputation is coming from their end. Um, I think it, you know, really started uh, back in 2017. Uh, the Penn Law's dissatisfaction with me, and, and I am a tenured law professor, so I do have some status there. When I published a, just a very innocuous op-ed in the Philadelphia Inquirer, our local city paper, uh, with a colleague from San Diego, Larry Alexander, um, in praise of bourgeois values, it was really a, a little piece about how so many of our problems in the United States would be alleviated if people stuck to a code of conduct that uh, was more front and center back in the 50s and for early part of the 20th century uh, that you know exemplified what you would call, I guess, the Protestant virtues. Um, and in the course of that op-ed, uh, we did say that not all cultures are alike, not all habits and behaviors are equally valuable, in our culture, which we described as a technological first world culture, uh, and that some habits and behaviors uh, made for a more successful and better life. Um, and so we kind of rejected this all cultures are equivalent multicultural dogma that, you know, seems to prevail in some quarters. Anyway, uh, it shouldn't have been controversial, but some people at my school, some students and professors uh, objected to it. Um, one professor ginned up a statement condemning me. It was very vague what they were condemning me for. Uh, my dean uh, also issued a negative statement about my opinions and my positions um, and my politics. Uh, and a number of student protest groups lined up behind him, or perhaps one should say ahead of him, since he tends to follow uh opinion of, of our least tutored members of our university, which are the students. Um, so that dean, my dean's name is uh, Ted Ruger. But I, just not to draw this out, um, it followed condemnation by condemnation of a number of statements I made in podcasts about affirmative action, about immigration, about Western civilization, 
uh, all of which are you know, in tension with the zeitgeist, the woke zeitgeist, that the progressive uh, tenets and principles that seem to now be, you know, the dominant ones on campus. Uh, and there was sort of wave after wave of criticism from my dean, from various student groups, uh, from politicians. Um, I've just been subject to uh, multiple instances of uh, condemnation uh, for my positions that I've expressed extramurally outside the school. Um, and now this has all come to a head because a few months ago, my dean filed formal charges against me. Uh, he initiated a disciplinary proceeding, uh, which now has gone to the university faculty senate. All of the uh, protocols are laid out in the faculty handbook. And they are now considering a whole laundry list of complaints against me, infractions I have supposedly committed against uh, the mission of the university, the core values of the university. Um, and, you know, this includes accusations of racism and sexism and xenophobia and white supremacy and all the usual labels that are put on people who uh, express unpopular views, uh, views that are not popular in the academy anyway. So now I am in the middle of trying to protect my job, defend myself and the like. Um, this is a kind of long convoluted story, but Alex, what it, what it really boils down to is an attempt to discipline me and perhaps even fire me uh, for unapproved positions that I have expressed. Uh, and I consider that a very ominous development because uh, it just betokens a broader trend of higher education trying to force out people who do not adhere to this narrow band of dogma, once again, this kind of far left progressive woke dogma about a whole host of topics. I think there is a trend on to purge higher education of dissenters to make it a bastion of one point of view that is educationally disastrous, uh, it is uh, disastrous for scholarship, for the telos of the university, which is the search for truth. This is uh, not a positive trend. So as a result, I am fighting uh, for my job and for my rights as a professor to uh, hold and express my own opinions. And that's really what this case is about. Yeah, I, I always found it very interesting whenever um, uh, you come up, even in kind of more dissident podcasts, I mean, maybe a bit le less dissident than this one, but, you know, the anti-woke podcast, every, even friends, people who are kind of friendly and open to your positions are like, oh, I don't agree with most of what Professor Wax has to say. But, you know, there's always kind of this preamble, uh, this hedging, this, uh, you know, but they never really say what exactly it is that you are supposed to have said that is incorrect or they don't really attack you on your position or not actually attack, but they disavow, you know, your, your very being <laughs> like you're some strange, you know, black hole that travels through, through the world that needs to be, you know, people need to insulate themselves from you. I mean, how, how have you felt this? Because uh, you, you've gotten open letters from people who I suppose were your colleagues who you, some of them you were close with. 
I mean, how, how has this felt on a personal level to be ostracized um, just like that? Well, first of all, let me say about this kind of ritualistic litany that always accompanies any mention of my name, even on the right, um, it's it's a, this interesting kind of runaway phenomenon, and it's very typical of our internet age that, you know, this habit will form. Everybody needs to disavow me and my the substance of my positions, even if they defend my right to say it. And it's curious because if you ask them point blank what exactly I said and when I said it and what point I was trying to make, they couldn't tell you. It's just a form of kind of, you know, luxury gesturing, uh, showing that you're a good person somehow now equates with condemning what Amy Wax says. And it's, it's mindless. I mean, it's totally mindless how people become radioactive like this, even on the right. I mean, the right you know, is very much into policing their own, uh, which is a habit that I think they should probably drop uh, for all sorts of reasons. So I just, you know, it's it's very frustrating to now become this outcast, even, you know, at the far ends of the political spectrum. There are people, you know, who, who are like that. I mean, uh, Jared Taylor is one, Charles Murray, Often, uh, Alex, I think it has to do with the topic of race, which is really radioactive. It's a third rail. And if you say the wrong things, even on the right about race, if you're an overt so-called race realist, for example, and, you know, I can explore with you what that means, that is even verboten on the right. But what does it feel like for me? Uh, Well, uh, you know, I'm a target of the so-called cancel culture. Uh, It means that I'm a pariah in my own institution. Um, No one will really stand up and defend me, uh, partly because they're cowardly and they don't want to get in, you know, be bothered, partly because they're afraid that uh, they will be targeted as I have been targeted. And even if the administration gives them a pass, the students are basically little tyrants. I mean, they have learned to be big bullies because the system empowers them. They have a megaphone in the internet and, you know, the media. Uh, They can gin up any sort of condemnation you can imagine. And those, you know, those events and labels and gestures stick. They really do stick. And it's very hard to you know, go back from them. Um, I have lost friends. People have ghosted me, but I've made new friends. Uh, there are a lot of people out there very sympathetic, not just to my right to speak out as an academic, but also to the substance of some of the things I've been saying, which, you know, have very little foothold in the university. Once again, um, just for examples, realism about race, restrictionism on immigration, uh, a behavioral emphasis uh, for um, getting ahead, a rejection of the pervasive power of structural racism, the defense of Western civilization and its outsized achievements. All of this kind of rhetoric has a very sympathetic hearing outside the academy in the real world. Uh, I guess, you know, there's many millions of knuckle-dragging deplorables who talk about this stuff all the time. 
uh, but not in academia. So really, I've had to seek friends outside academia. And here's what I've learned. There is a lively, intelligent, uh, nuanced community of people, uh, highly informed, very well-read, very thoughtful, uh, who exist outside the academy today. Uh, and the academy, as far as I'm concerned, is kind of a dead zone in a lot of ways now because people cannot fully, freely, and frankly discuss a lot of the issues that confront our society. Do you think there is any way back for the academy as it is currently? And and it's, you know, the Ivy League, will it exist 100 years from now? Will it have the same status? Um, Can it revive itself? This is a very complex question. Um, And the people I know, uh, the people on the right, uh, discuss it all the time. Um, I really have to say that I just have not reached any firm conclusion on this. Uh, I do think there's hope for our nation because there are a lot of people who are thoughtful, who believe in, you know, a right to free speech and free, free thought, who are very traditional liberals in that respect. Those people do exist, although they don't always speak up for obvious reasons. Uh, But there are precious few left in the academy, and certainly the young people coming up and coming through uh, are very unlikely to believe in those precepts, in part because they get weeded out, and in part because they're the product of many, many years of, you know, one-sided, tendentious propaganda in their education, so they're just basically ignorant. So, you know, what do we do about that? Academia is this closed system. It's protected by this carapace uh, of, you know, sort of self-perpetuation. That's how academic institutions work. I think there is a glimmer of hope if the following things happen. First of all, Republican politicians have to really start paying attention to higher education as the seedbed for all of these far left ideas that are infiltrating our society, uh, we need to get their attention. And that hasn't really happened yet. Second, Republicans need to seize you know, Congress, the Senate. They need to come into power so that they'll be in a position to do something about it. Um, third, they need to think very hard about what they can do. I think the main avenue both for public and private reform of universities, is money. Money is the lifeblood of these institutions. Um, They have tons of private money. Now I'm talking about private universities like the Ivies, right? But they also feed at the trough of the federal government to the tune of hundreds of millions of dollars for grants, for support, for programs. If a Republican administration, let's say a DeSantis administration, said, you know, we are going to place additional conditions on receiving these federal funds, perhaps in a way like Title VI of the Civil Rights Act, which requires non-discrimination as a condition for receiving federal funds, perhaps non-viewpoint discrimination, adhering to First Amendment requirements, reducing the number of uh, diversity bureaucrats, there are all sorts of conditions that could be placed on the receipt of federal funds that I think could potentially have 
a positive effect. So that would kind of be the place where I would look uh, because I doubt that the Ivies are going to reform themselves from within. Um, as for their prestige, will they still be as powerful as they are today? That in part depends on money, whether private donors will continue to shovel money in their direction, which they do, and I would love to see that stop. Um, but also, it really depends on what happens with affirmative action in the wake of the case that's going to be heard actually next Monday in the Supreme Court. Uh, if the Ivies are forced to into a non-discrimination mode, they may end up responding by uh, weakening the meritocracy. You know, one of the smoking guns in the case is that Asians have to have much higher SAT scores than, let's say, blacks, uh, or even somewhat higher than whites in order to get into these schools. The schools could respond by just abolishing the SATs, abolishing tests, abolishing measures of merit. Uh, I think that's a dangerous strategy because it will dilute their brand. Uh, their popularity, their strength depends on serving as a human resources department for uh, the greater economy. Uh, companies, firms, uh, graduate schools depend on them to find the best and the brightest. And if they're not really doing that anymore, uh, that that could um, make them less important. I, this is all speculation, you know, of what's going to happen. Right now, the Ivies are riding high. They have a tremendous amount of power. Why? Because they are the gateway to upper middle class jobs and upper middle class life, and they have a lock on that. Um, so if conditions change so that weren't the case, that could also weaken them. So, you know, there are a lot of contingencies uh, that we need to consider about whether their influence will decline. Now, that won't mean that they'll become less woke uh, or less in the grip of lefties. Um, I'm not sure, you know, if there's any formula for that happening. There are, you know, there are inroads that could be made, but at the end of the day, uh, that's that's pretty airtight. Um, just to make the institutions generally less lucrative, less uh, important, that would have to be the direction, I think, of the project. Yes, I think, um, you, know, you know, everything that you've been describing up to this point, you know, it's, it's partly, you know, wokeness seeping in from academia into society, but it also feels to me like there are certain load-bearing fictions of, you know, the multicultural liberal democracy that are now trembling a little bit. And I wonder what your relationship is to, to liberalism in general. Because, um, for example, if, you're, if, if the knowledge you have about so-called race realism, you know, human biodiversity, if we put it that way, were common knowledge and kind of baked into the pie of, of our current society, and it wouldn't be um, you know, strange to remark on these things, you would essentially have to accept a certain racial caste system. Um, and kind of the, the core conceit of, of meritocracy, as it's seen now, it wouldn't really hold up under the strain of that. So it feels to me like, you know, a lot is hidden behind the fact that people like you are pariahs. You know, you're essentially the atlas that holds up the fiction of our world. Um, and, you know, hopefully you're, you're, you're in the shadows. But, uh, you know, if everyone knew what you knew, um, a lot of stuff wouldn't necessarily work. You'd have 
you would have paternalism coming in through the front door. It would have to be instated in some way. You know, the the white man's burden would be back. There, there are so many things that would have to be come back with a vengeance that it wouldn't be called liberalism, would it? Well, I I disagree here. Let me let me go back to what you said earlier, where you said, well, if you know, if people are realistic about the facts and what's really going on, and of course. You know, at the end of the day, all roads lead back to race. I do really believe that. I know there's stuff going on on the gender front, but I think race is sort of the big looming elephant in the room that drives all of these trends. But for you to mention a caste system, I really am going to object to that. I think when people say, well, race realism will send us back to a caste system. No, a caste system is a system of official and unofficial taboos and restrictions placed on some groups rather than others. I mean, Jim Crow is a caste system, right? Uh, what Apartheid is a caste system. Um, a laissez-faire merit-based approach, which leads to an outcome where some groups uh, are predominant in certain fields or certain areas, and others are less present or less dominant, that is not a caste system. That is the product of uh, a meritocracy in a capitalist uh, free market society um, with people competing with each other for various uh, positions of responsibility, remuneration, and prestige. And that is pretty much, you know, the system that I would advocate for. And I think that we did have that system briefly uh, with the passage of the Civil Rights Act, which is a non-discrimination colorblind imperative uh, in the 50s and the 60s, um, you know, especially after the Civil Rights Act, we had that system. That is not a caste system. If you look out in the world and see that, let's say, you know, there are relatively few blacks in academic medicine or, you know, high level science um, more whites or more Asians, that just is the natural product of the fact that different groups have different strengths and weaknesses. Uh, and that is something our society should accept. Um, to not accept it is to engage in this, you know, equity, disparate impact, all groups must be equally represented conceit that is at the heart of progressivism and leads to tyranny. Yeah. Um, it's based on a fallacy. All groups are not equally interested, capable, equipped to occupy all positions. Now, as you imply, that is one hell of a hard sell for most of the population and the current climate. I mean, it is a sacred item of faith. It's very hard to prove as well. I think that's that's the question. It's not hard to prove. I mean, we have, to just take an example, we have IQ and test score data going back, you know, through the 20th century. Uh, we know that, and, and, you know, I'll just come right out and say it, right, that on average, Blacks have lower uh, cognitive ability than whites. You know, that's just a fact. It's a fact which... You can be persecuted for stating, but it is a fact. 
even apart from getting into the vex question of why that's the case. I mean, we could argue all day about why that's the case, but it has ramifications. Charles Murray wrote a book called Facing Reality in which he said it matters. You know, if you want 14% of academic cardiologists to be black, that is going to be very difficult in light of the fact that, you know, 14% of blacks are not really presently positioned or equipped to compete uh, for those very demanding high level jobs. And, you know, the bottom line is, how do we get society to accept this? Right? How do we get society to accept the reality of group differences? Uh, I don't know the answer to that, but I do know that until that happens, right, uh, conservatives and classic liberals uh, are going to be one down. So uh, back to the question of, you know, what am I? I'm a conservative classic. Today, classical liberals are regarded as conservative. They're regarded as right wing, right? An irony of ironies because these alliances and these labels shift. Now, you know, I am in many respects a classical liberal, but in other respects, I'm sort of a reactionary paleoconservative in that I think libertarianism, pure and simple in our society, does lead to decline and decadence and the loss of important norms and habits and traditions. So if you are someone who is right of center, you have to think very, very hard about trying to develop almost a kind of fusionist ideal about how society should work, right? And here I'm kind of gesturing to Frank Myers from the last century, uh, of how much uh, intervention, both informal and formal, we should have to shore up traditions and norms that are necessary to keep society going in a positive direction, and how much we should embrace the kind of expressive individualistic freedom uh, that is associated more with classical liberalism. And, you know, trying to create that hybrid is a real challenge. I teach conservative political and legal thought, and I grapple with this every day in every class uh, to try and get my students to think about it uh, in a constructive way. So that would be my answer about, you know, what am I? I'm kind of a hybrid, I guess you could call it. Yeah, a hybrid that's that's in tension with itself in many respects. Yeah, I think uh, everyone is in in some form of tension nowadays. If you're if you're really considering uh, the political landscape and you're really thinking about these things, um, in in terms of of kind of a, a the, the classical liberal system or the liberal system in general, um, would you say that um, of the, the uh, excuse me, <laughs> I'll reset myself. Uh, the um, the the libertarian angle that you mentioned, um, you know, and you were also mentioning you've you've written about the the breakdown of bourgeois values. Would that be the same type of mechanism, the same type of wheel turning? Because a lot of times it feels to me like libertarianism uh, and all the libertarian measures that were successful were only the ones that referred to uh, dissolving traditional institutions rather than right. actually, you know, getting people more guns or things that you know were interesting to the right. 
So um, is that is that kind of the, the the mechanism at play there? Well, I think libertarianism, um, what Richard Weaver calls the chirping sectaries of libertarianism, uh, has always pure libertarianism has always been advocated by a relatively small percentage of the population. People joke about it, you know. Uh, IQ 130 plus white males, they love libertarianism. I'm not sure it's really suited to anybody else, right? Um, but, you know, definitely it is recognized that libertarianism, this kind of free-for-all, private individuals get to do what they want as long as it supposedly doesn't hurt others. Of course, the harm principle is vexed in, it, vexed in itself. That comes from Mill. And the government should be as small as possible. That is what I take to be the classic libertarian uh, position. Those people, I think, don't go out to deliberately destroy traditional norms, mores, and customs and institutions. They don't, they don't have that as their goal. But I think when libertarian plays out, it definitely has that effect in many respects. And, you know, this goes all the way back to the cultural contradictions of capitalism. Daniel Bell's famous book where he says capitalism uh, feeds off of traditional norms and mores and depends on them, but it also contains the seeds of destroying them. And, you know, what he said, we need Puritan and Protestant discipline and work ethic uh, and obedience to law and frugality and temperance, uh, restraints, all of that are necessary to make our system of government and our economy go. But we're drawing down that capital like crazy. Right. And when we run out of it, uh, our system is going to fall apart. This is a very, very old insight. Right. Uh, that many people have have repeated. Um so that is definitely a problem. I mean, now we have all these critiques of liberalism that essentially uh, restate that objection. Patrick Deneen, uh, other people, Rusty Reno, um, they recognize that liberalism contains the seeds of its own destruction. And what's interesting is the founding fathers understood that too. If you read the Federalist Papers, you know, people like Madison, um, John Jay, uh, Hamilton, various others say our system, our democratic system, our Republican democratic system, of course, it's not a pure democracy, and our market system, uh, which is so productive of prosperity, those depend on a virtuous people, a virtuous people. Uh, and at the center of virtue, of course, is religion and religious faith. And our legacy of bourgeois values uh, from our English, our Anglo predecessors, because they bequeathed us their political system, their their uh, personal values, their faith. Uh, and if if you don't have a virtuous people, uh, the system can't work. Now the question is, how do you produce, preserve, protect, and defend a virtuous people? And that is the great challenge. I think, uh, the core challenge of the age. And we've jettisoned so many of our customs, of our habits, of our understandings. And of course, unlike libertarians, far left progressives have as a central commitment of their worldview to sweep away the past 
the past is this cobweb system of prejudices um, and limitations that are antithetical to human liberation. Uh, so, you know, we have the people in charge uh, are hostile to the past. They hate the past, um, you know, with selective exceptions. Uh, and that, I think, is particularly dangerous. What do you make of the idea that, you know, the, you mentioned Anglo, uh, Anglo-American, Anglo-Saxon civilization, that this formula, Western civilization, as we know it now, is essentially something that can only grow out of the substrate that it has grown out of. And now we're trying to translate this and just apply this algorithm in Botswana and expect, you know, this is how it should be and just export the American model everywhere. And it's shown a lot of dysfunction. You know, they've tried different, you know, in, in Russia in the 90s, it really doesn't work the way they think it works. And, and, and everywhere in the world, it, it seems to be not functional. And the dysfunctions of that system are kind of reflecting black on the American empire and saying, okay, you know, uh, you know, this is oppression or you, you haven't been giving us enough or something like that. So is there, is there something to be said that certain systems work for certain types of people? Well, absolutely. I mean, you know, that just comports with our observations uh, about the world around us. Um, I understand it is resisted because people don't want to believe that our system can't be adopted uh, and translated into other contexts, exported worldwide. People really uh, want that to be the case. It's sort of a form of magic dirt thinking, right? It also has implications for immigration. We can bring people in from all over the world in tremendous numbers. There's no limit, and they will instantly adopt our outlook, our mores, our habits, uh, embrace our system, and all this sort of thing. I actually think that's just complete nonsense, uh, but it's not a popular point of view. So exporting democracy, you know, in a top-down kind of way, forcibly, or even by persuasion, um, that is not going to work in vast parts of the world. And actually the reasons, um, well, they're complex, but you can reduce it to some pretty simple, uh, some simple observations. I had said to Richard Hanania when I did a, a podcast with him that the importance of political corruption is really underestimated, uh, vastly underestimated. Most of the globe uh, is governed by a hideously and deeply corrupt people uh, who do not honor their civic responsibilities, do not show restraint in their roles, who are essentially thieves and steal from their own uh, citizens um, and feel no sense of obligation whatsoever. Uh, the sense of obligation and the restraints uh, that are absolutely essential to the Anglo-American system and to post-Enlightenment European systems more generally Certainly the Nordic and Teutonic systems are, are better than, than most. Well, that's a tiny part of uh, the known universe, right? The rest of the world is riddled with hideous corruption, uh, outright exploitation and theft of the leadership, by the leadership of their own people. So, you know, how do you get rid of that? Um, how do you reform that? We don't have a clue as to how to do that. So I am very, very skeptical of 
exporting our Anglo-American style democracy to other places. Um, that has been pretty much a failure, I think. If it's going to happen, and it, it does happen occasionally, it has to be a sort of bubble up phenomenon uh, where the people sort of, they become convinced that this is a good system and they also realize what it takes to make the system work, right? Which is a lot of restraint, sense of responsibility, civic mindedness. You know, you can't impart those things um, to other to other civilizations, to other cultures. Yeah, this is a, an interesting uh, subject because I mean, I'm I'm Romanian. I've grown up here. This is one of those countries. Used to be much more brutally this way, and even in living memory. Now things have changed a little bit and they're kind of trending towards a, a Europe. And I would have to say that the biggest element in this was the actual the intervention of the European Union and them bringing their kind of um, administration here and forcing right. under the threat of law us to, it's essentially a form of colonialism where yeah. you have imperial supervision and they're essentially forcing there. But it's also uh, just just in, in terms of game theory, because people just don't understand when I try to explain to Western people, okay, you know, why is there corruption? Can't you just all agree to stop corruption on one day? No, because if you're the, the sucker who says, <laughs> I'm, I'm the one who's not going to be corrupt right. today. You're, yeah. yeah, it's it's not going, it just doesn't work. It's just, yeah. you know, it's a defect, defect equilibrium. And so are most countries in the world. The West has escaped this for, I don't know, a few, maybe a few millennium. Yeah, it's, it's wonderful, uh, but it's not common. And it's not common in nature and it's not common anywhere else. So yeah, it's a, it's a strange place to be. And I'm happy it is this way. I mean, I'm not a fan of the European Union for other reasons, but in this in this simple regard, the fact that they they bring a little bit of that of Western European rigor and just the oversight of knowing mm. that you might be caught and the EU might take their money back because there are all structural funds and development funds and stuff. You don't want them to take their money back. <laughs> that's that's been that's been a very it's been a boon in a way for a lot of uh, cultural issues here. Yeah, sure. I mean, I, what you say about the EU is very interesting because you know I I think the EU has a lot of downsides and drawbacks when you're dealing with countries that really can manage on their own and like like Britain have their own very strong traditions that they want to continue of governance, um, of liberty, of freedom, and the like, but. Eastern Europe is a liminal uh, example. They're, they have one foot in Europe and, you know, one foot in sort of illiberal um, conventions and regimes or understandings of how to govern and how to live. And so they could kind of go either way. And they're the EU, uh, the EU's lever of money, right, which, as you say, has a kind of colonialist aspect to it, could possibly uh, shift the norms and and have a positive effect and bring Eastern Europe closer to Western norms and mores. But once again, you're you know wielding the stick uh, of uh, funds, that sort of thing. You know, you said it's like colonialism. I mean, I have no problem with colonialism. Um, <laughs> Me neither. I, I recognize that it it has probably no long term viability in the current world, but it it was necessary and did a lot of good. Uh, when it happened and where the Western powers have withdrawn and left people to their own devices, a lot of bad stuff has happened. I mean, Africa is just a, a case in point. Africa is so blatantly, egregiously 
incapable of governing itself in any constructive way. Uh, I find it amusing that, you know, progressives just turn that on its head. Well, Africa's a basket case, but that's because of colonialism. Really? I, where do you get that? I mean, do they just keep repeating it over and over again? Doesn't make it true. A lot of the best stuff in Africa, to the extent it does function to some extent, was brought in uh, from Western Europe by the colonial conquerors uh, and the like. Uh, and now, um, now that they've withdrawn, uh, you know, I don't, I don't see any positive signs that things are getting better um, in these countries. But anyway, I think you know the point is that uh, it is very, very hard to import cultures from one place to another. It's a collective action problem. There are so many collective action problems we don't know how to solve recognizing that, you know, it requires a collective solution doesn't mean that we have one. The real miracle, I think, is that the West has remained relatively corruption-free. Of course, it's not 100% corruption-free, but relatively speaking, it's wildly successful. The Nordic countries, England and the Anglosphere generally, is very well run, run with great honesty and integrity, once again, relatively speaking. And when you see it as a collective action problem, you have to ask yourself, wow, you know, what is the source of its stability? Why has it endured? Why hasn't the one cuckoo in the nest, right, the defector, the hawk in the hawk-dove game brought it all down? You know, what's what's prevented it from, from collapsing? Uh, that when you when you think about it that way, you realize how fragile it is, you know, and how vulnerable to subversion. Uh, I think in the United States, you know, uh, there is a fair amount of subversion. I mean, a lot of local governments, big city governments, um, they are not in the hands of uh, what we would call legacy Americans. They're not in traditional hands. Uh, they are being run like third world countries, frankly, in many respects. Uh, it's a mixed bag. But I just worry that, you know, these corrupt um, grifters are going to take over our cities, have taken them over in part, and, you know, bring us back to third world conditions. Um, so we really have to be afraid of that and be vigilant. And of course, it's all mixed up with race. So nobody feels like they can criticize these big city governments uh, when, for example, they're in black hands, uh, that if, if they're not well run, they can't say anything negative. Uh, they have to find some white people to blame. It's a little bit like the colonialism problem, right? Africa's a basket case. White people are to blame. Well, Alex, no bigger lie was ever told, you know, but I guess the bigger the lie, the more people will believe it. Yeah, this this reminds me of kind of one one of the the main themes of this podcast and why I've started the podcast and the thing you know people call this the the red pill moment or your epiphany in, in this space. I, I I used to live in in England in London and uh, just a street crime really really brought it home to me and the lack of enforcement, the disinterest from the police. They would just come and you know file a report. They would record the fact that a violent crime had occurred. You know someone tried to break into your house. Okay, we write it down on this paper. Uh, it, it was just 
quite insane to me. And I come from so-called second world. I'm, I'm, you know, used to low standards in many respects, but just the fact that there was no, no level of, of security. And then another big thing that happened in the UK, a place, you know, one of these you know, non-corrupt Western places was the immense grooming gang scandal. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but like cities upon cities, you know, it's just, it, and it reflected the same apathy from the police that I saw in London, you know, in East London, where I used to live. You know, th- these things happen. It was treated like the weather, you know, violent crime on, on, on a massive scale, systemic, um, you know, just, just happens. It's, it was, it's, it's very disturbing. And like you said, this stuff is, it, it is subversion. It's, it's seeping into, into the, the foundations of the West and it's, it can't hold on for much longer. Right. I mean, this is what Moynihan long ago called defining deviancy down, right? And uh, there's just a massive campaign afoot in the West, in the Anglosphere, uh, in the United States and in England and like countries to uh, normalize uh, bad behavior, normalize crime, define it down and say, well, this is, you know, we can expect a certain level of this. What else can you expect? Not not asking people to be scrupulous and upright uh, as, you know, but 40, 50 years ago was expected of them. I mean, certainly in my upbringing, you know, it it was just assumed that people would obey the law. I never knew a person who had been arrested. I never knew a person convicted of a crime. Oh, maybe I knew someone's second cousin who was convicted of tax fraud. Uh, But, you know, violent crime was was unthinkable. I mean, I'm still under the influence of my upbringing. I'm old enough to remember that. Uh, and now I see this slow and steady erosion of that. We are, we are destroying and undermining the predicates of our own success, and we're doing it willfully uh, with eyes open. And, you know, I live in Philadelphia, and Philadelphia is you know, a dangerous slump. I mean, let's make no mistake about it. And we have, you know, an attorney in charge uh, who doesn't care. I mean, thinks it's more important to let criminals out of jail than to protect the general public. So that's part of, I think, what's going on where third world concepts and standards are creeping into the first world. That's actually a very useful trope uh, because when it comes to crime, when it comes to governance, when it comes to running the economy, even, uh, we see a kind of reversion back to uh, more primitive, less developed, less Western assumptions and ways in the name of what? Anti-colonialism, multiculturalism, you know, racial equity, anti-racism, whatever label you want to put on it. This is definitely happening. And just to go back to the universities, they are 100% behind it. And of course, the Democratic Party is 100% behind what is happening in the universities with crime, in society, all of that. They are the instruments and the handmaidens of this sort of thing. Um, I know this sounds partisan. That's fine. Uh, With all its flaws, the Republican Party really is our last best hope to try and reverse some of these trends. Uh, You know, while the West and and while the uh, lefties are intent upon tarring us all as deplorables and racists, you know, if you're interested in law and order, that's a 
a code word for racist. Um, yet, I think, you know, we, we do have a vital center in our society of people who do object to these trends. They see them for what they are. Yes. I, I think the, the the issue that uh, a lot of people on the left see with, uh, with you know, incarceration and, you know, penalizing criminals for acting criminally is that they feel that, you know, they have this blank slate vision of the world and they think, oh, okay, these people are criminal. You know, poverty is a source of crime. So they're poor first and they're criminal second downstream from all the social factors that have been inflicted by people like you, Amy, because you're rich and whatever, you're white, you belong to whatever cast of people who are evil and oppressive and uh, penalizing them for acting criminally is just compounding their problem of you know being oppressed by you or whoever in the first place. So I can I can see that perspective. I don't agree with it, but I, it feels like that's kind of the, the main vision that we, we live on, that any sort of social dysfunction is downstream from, uh, you know, Oppression, oppression caused social dysfunction somewhere, somewhere upstream, and that if we just fix, I don't know, capitalism or whatever is at the at the source of of this long flow, then we'll fix all social dysfunction. People will just act act well and act good towards each other naturally because we're all nice people uh, deep down. Right. Well, that's the narrative. All right. You just summarized, you know, what I call the woke narrative. And if you when people say, well, what do you mean by woke? I say, well. First of all, it means, you know, this Rousseauian idea that all people are born good and it's society that corrupts them, which is 180 degrees from the truth, in my humble opinion. Uh, And I think conservatives and progressives differ in this core commitment to whether people are born evil and require restraint uh, by society and civilization or whether they are born good and are corrupted by evil systems and the like. So that yields, that philosophy yields this very forgiving attitude towards deviance, towards antisocial behavior uh, that, you know, I think needs to be countered and defeated because it's inaccurate and dangerous. Um, What's interesting in in your stating this and stating it very simply uh, is that It goes back to the education system and what's wrong with our education system. Our education system is one in which from the moment our kids hit kindergarten, this narrative of the accepted sort of socially constructivist, man is good, institutions are evil uh, narrative is pushed on our young people. uh, And frankly, it is the only one that many of them hear. They are not even exposed to a different point of view, uh, a let's call it a more conservative point of view, which has a very different idea about human nature and how it plays out, believes in original sin, believes in the evil propensities of much of mankind, sees civilization, institutions, traditions, um, and habits as the salvation and not the enemy, they don't even hear that. They're not exposed to those ideas, to those authors, to the whole conservative corpus of people who articulate and promulgate um, those notions. And by the time I get them in law school, uh, they truly do believe that there is only one truth and only one accepted point of view. Um, So, you know, a lot of what we're seeing in society 
is the product of a highly tilted, uh, biased, one-sided education system. And that needs to be addressed. I would like, you know, politicians and pundits to recognize that this is a vital imperative uh, to do something about how our children are educated. Yeah, and and also leave behind the the framing of the left because that's the problem that you've been highlighting with the Republican Party as well is that uh, a lot of their tactics are to just say, oh no, the uh, Democrats are the are the real racists. You know, they're they're you know they're playing within the same framework of within the same. You know, you're not going to out racist the Democrats. They set the they invent categories about what is racist or sexist or you know they that's their that's their playbook. It's not you know you can't do that. That's not in your right. So it would have to be, um, like you said, a, a framing that's based on truth, based on very basic facts, you know, that are even even to this day uh, acknowledged by the American Academy of, uh, of, I think, of psychology. There are tables and different documents about this stuff that everyone just treats like radioactive matter. Um, you know, this, this type of stuff, if no one in the Republican Party can even say this stuff out loud, then what are we dealing with? Is it- well, right. I mean, intelligence differences is, is only one aspect of it because there are cultural differences. There are value differences. Um, you know, there's third world versus first world mentalities. There's a lot of different things that can be discussed. But I think you're absolutely right that if the Republicans cannot acknowledge basic facts about group differences and the ramifications of that in our society and the fact that we then have to abandon all of these heavy-handed, uh, oppressive efforts to, you know, pretend that it's not true and counter these things, then they are never going to succeed. Um, you know, but every time I say in any context to people, uh, you know, you're never going to win, uh, if you don't acknowledge these group differences and say to people, you just need to accept all the consequences of that, that Different groups won't be represented equally in different desirable sectors of society, prestigious sectors, perhaps. Whenever you say that, people just quail. They they really can't take it to that to that level. It's interesting because there's been a lot of writing and talk about affirmative action, critical affirmative action, uh, in right-leaning journals and outlets and online, anticipatory to this Harvard case that's going to be heard in the Supreme Court on Monday, challenging affirmative action at Harvard and UNC. And they all say, you know, we need to get rid of disparate impact theory. Uh, we need to change the civil rights laws so that, you know, affirmative action is no longer allowed. Uh, we need to make all these changes but what they won't do is go one step further and say, and when we do that, after we do that, what is the world going to look like? And are we ready, willing, and able to accept what the world will look like? Right? The world will not look like the diversity, equity, and inclusion ideal that is held up as you know, a non-racist world. It, it will not look like that. You have to accept the proposition that in a fair, colorblind, non-racist world, you will not see proportional distribution. And that is the step 
that they are unwilling to take. Uh, and being unwilling to take that step, they don't really close the deal on get rid of affirmative action, get rid of disparate impact liability and the like. What will happen when we get rid of affirmative action? Right? What will Harvard look like? What will the world look like? What will elite institutions look like? What will you know elite research medicine look like? Uh, engineering, physics, all of these uh, kind of elite jobs and positions. What will our economy look like? No, our economy will be lumpy. You know, some groups will uh, tend to kind of redound to some jobs. Uh, now, if you're going to go ahead and call that a caste system, then you're in trouble. Do not call that a caste system, right? People say, oh, it looks like a caste system. You know, all of the all of the engineers at Google are white and Asian and all the people working in the kitchen in Google are black and Hispanic. That looks like a caste system. We have to do something about that. No, my view is we don't have to do something about that. Let's not do something about that, right? People yeah. are responsible in society for finding the own level that they're comfortable with and are capable of. Let people exercise that responsibility. Let's have an opportunity society um, that is colorblind, that you know judges people on their merits, and let the chips fall where they may. And I think that's where conservatives, right of center people, Republicans need to be. They need to have the courage to say that. Uh, now, of course, people come back and say, well, what would account for all of these, these stratification other than racism? What would account for it other than racism? I heard someone ask that question the other day on a podcast, someone I respect. And he said, well, just say there's a pipeline problem. There's a pipeline problem for you know certain positions. But that's no answer because people are going to say, well, why is there a pipeline problem? Yeah. It has to be racism, right? Every pipeline problem is, you know, owns up to racism. No, you're not going to get anywhere with it's that. It's politically salient and explosive and extremely useful for whoever wants these constituencies to just tell them, okay, it is not that you are structurally incapable of becoming X percent of, I don't know, academic clinicians and X field. Uh, it is that you are structurally oppressed, that you need our help, that you need, you know, these satraps to represent you. Uh, you need all of these uh, these intermediaries to to stand up for you. You need BLM. You need all of these, you know, organizations who are here to feed off of all the money surrounding this problem. Um, and I think the the problem that I see within liberalism, because we, we always talk about the marketplace of ideas, it hasn't felt like a marketplace. It felt like, you know, you have the facts on your side. I believe these facts. I agree with you. Um, they don't seem to carry much weight in the market. You know, the exchange value for your facts is very low. Uh, people don't like them. Um, and then, you know, ideas like BLM are worth hundreds of millions of dollars. Uh, they are insane, many of them. Um, and people like to believe them because, you know, they, they carry political weight. They, they move constituencies. They attract people to one party versus the other. Uh, they, you know, have a lot of elite cachet. There's all sorts of reasons. So I feel like that's, for me, that's kind of where I'm you know, more of a reactionary than a liberal because it just doesn't feel to me like that's how things work in the real world, like how, how status is traded, how, how power is traded. 
Right. Well, first of all, the facts, the basic facts about group differences are hidden, systematically hidden and suppressed. So we just have to realize that. I mean, talking to uh, college kids, elite, elite young people, they just even are not aware of it or just dimly aware of it or, you know, don't really understand its ramifications. They're, they deny the significance of IQ. They think all sorts of things that they're, they've sort of been fed from day one. Right. And to the extent that, you know, people are aware of it and smart enough to understand it, they make all sorts of excuses for it. I mean, Coleman Hughes said, for example, as someone I respect, uh, well, you know, we can't tell high school students that, you know, blacks as a whole have lower cognitive ability. I mean, that's just too disturbing, too upsetting. We, we have to hide that from them. We, you know, that's a fact that we just have to suppress. And, and my view is, yeah, well, the, ram, the, the consequences of suppressing it are, you know, huge and enormous. Suppressing the truth is, requires a great deal of tyranny and effort. And it's, it's very hard to maintain that. Right. Um, but, you know, there are other forces at play. I mean, people, what we have now in society on the left is a massive excuse factory. Uh, we have an excuse factory for failure, failure for individuals, failure for groups, relatively speaking, um, self-inflicted wounds, behaviors that actually some groups could change. I mean, you know, if you want to say, well, blacks just you know, still still are at a disadvantage. They're still in trouble. We need to be concerned about that. I mean, there are a lot of things that blacks themselves could reform uh, to make their lives better, not have such a, a high out of wedlock birth rate, for example, uh, use drugs less, um, you know, be more obedient to law, stop committing crimes. These are all behaviors that uh, are within the power of the people to change. Uh, so there, there is a lot of room for improvement. Uh, but as long as we have this kind of, you are a victim, you can't help it. There's nothing you can do because structural racism is dictating, uh, these outcomes and behaviors. As long as we have this huge excuse factory, I call it the exoneration machine, right? The exoneration project, uh, very little progress is going to be made, um, so, you know, the left is all about the exoneration project and it extends to their attitudes to crime, to punishment, all of this throwing about these terms about over-incarceration, you know, over-incarceration compared to what? That's what I always ask. Uh, and they never have an answer. Um, educational achievement from, you know, day one, kindergarten on, uh, gap achievement gaps, um, financial uh, gaps in in savings, in financial success, in home ownership. Uh, it just it affects everything, and I don't see a way forward to, you know, negating that rhetoric uh, on a large scale. Yeah. So you feel the the truth will just eventually have to come out one way or the other. It just can't be suppressed. I'm not, I wouldn't go so far as to say that the truth has to come out. I would say that the fact that certain things are true and, and we're in denial about them, right, is going to continue to generate disruptions, conflict, dissatisfaction, uh, tyranny in the form of suppression and persecution of people who 
dared to want to be honest about it, it's going to introduce deformities in our society of all kinds. I mean, take an example, NIH announcing that it will not allow researchers to use their genomic databases and you know information that they've accumulated if they have any suspicion that uh, the conclusions of their research will uh, disparage certain groups or genders or the like. So, you know, we now have gatekeeping for databases for research based on political priorities. Well, that, you know, is very destructive. That's uh, very damaging to the scientific enterprise. Um, it means that certain research won't get done. Uh, certain truths won't come out. Um, certain ideas will be suppressed. Uh, I mean, that's the sort of thing that has to go on when you're committed to ensuring that, you know, certain ideas never see the light of day. Uh, and, and it has very negative ramifications. I mean, the Chinese are going to do this research. Uh, other people are going to do research that might reveal untoward conclusions. Uh, we will suffer for it. Uh, the way medicine and academic medicine is being run right now, the deep affirmative action in selecting medical students, residents, and other people in the medical industrial complex, the obsession with getting more blacks into those uh, areas and professions, I mean, that cannot help but impair and impede um, the medical research project. It's going to. Uh, we, the United States, who are the engine of innovation in medical science, in medical treatment, uh, eventually we are going to lose our preeminence if we continue down that road. It may take a while. Uh, but I can't imagine it won't happen. And we're the almost the last man standing here. There are a few other European countries that are also are active in uh, therapeutic innovation for diseases like cancer, um, neurological diseases and the like. The rest of the world is just a wasteland. And when we go, you know, there'll be widespread stagnation, lack of progress. So is anybody worried about that? We ought to be worried. Yeah, I, I believe so too. I mean, it's uh, you know, the 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 West has been kind of a a beacon of everything that uh, people like you know my family and most, all of Eastern Europe was looking towards. And now I know a lot of people coming back, so myself included, uh, not because you know civilization is in shambles already, but there there are better reasons to come to come live here now um, and yeah, avoid avoid some of the things in the West. I wanted to touch on one other type of race realism that's been in the news recently. And I don't know if you followed this, but the big, big kerfuffle about uh, singer Kanye West mentioning uh, something about over Jewish overrepresentation in the media and in the academia and things like that. Um, this has deplatformed him from every, you know, from the face of the earth. Everyone's dropped him. Um, I, I wonder what you think about kind of the other side of the spectrum. And, and this is also an, an unmentionable thing, which I believe personally ties also into a certain type of race realism. I mean, if you look at you know, Ashkenazi Jewish results in any sort of uh, direction you want to look at, uh, the so-called early life check, it, it pretty much always turns out that you know people have some sort of Jewish admixture if they're 
tied into some highly verbal, highly you know media tied thing. Um, and that leads a lot of people to ask questions. And one of the latest people who's asking questions is, is Kanye West. I don't know how how do you think about this this type of um, kind of there's a certain omerta about this stuff as well. One should not mention this because you know it's it's always about you know, bringing back the the Second World War. But it is it is a fact. I mean this is this is true. Well, I mean, anytime you talk about Jews and their their out, outsized talents. Uh, you know, intellectual talents, which, you know, they unquestionably have uh, or had, uh, it's always quick, uh, a quick transition to reductio, reductio ad hitlerum, right? Uh, I mean, we, we have that tendency in, in many areas, but when you mention Jews, forget it. Um, look, I, I haven't followed the Kanye West controversy. I, I think it's probably a classic case of overreaction you know, Jews are are quick to um, level accusations of anti-Semitism anytime anybody makes generalizations about Jews or says anything that's even remotely critical. I mean, it's kind of the parallel number to blacks pointing the finger and shouting racism, right? But you know, let's let's try and be objective about this. I am a hundred percent Ashkenazi Jewish, so I am talking about my own people here. Um, Jews have punched way above their weight uh, in certain influential areas, areas that are key to shaping opinions and attitudes, uh, journalism, um, the universities, the professoriate, the professions, Hollywood, communications of all kinds because of their high verbal ability, because of their intellectual interests, uh, because of their uh, self-discipline, I mean, whatever traits and attributes you know you want to name, they've they are equipped to do these things, and they have done them in disproportionate numbers. Now, I have gone on the record, uh, much to the dismay of a number of people, as saying, you know, I think that Jews in in having outsized influence in the opinion shaping areas of life. And they do, they absolutely do. That's just a fact, Alex, you know, we're just talking about basic head counts here, right? They have, I think, abused their positions in many ways. They have used their position to try to impose on, you know, everyone, the whole country, the whole world, uh, their preferred values, and worldview, um, which is very universalistic, it's very utopian, uh, it's international, it's cosmopolitan, whatever you want to call it, you know, very left, Jews are very left, statist, welfare statist, um, their preferred world. They have done their very best to try and bring about their, you know, internationalist, open borders, um, et cetera. They've tried to bring about that world. Uh, and that's not the world that their fellow citizens necessarily prefer. Uh, so this raises a very interesting question of, you know, what should a highly influential group do about the fact that their values and preferences are not shared by all? Should they stand down? Should they withdraw and sow some tolerance? Uh, or should they go full steam ahead and try and make the country over in their own image? Well, I think that's a hard question. I personally think that in a democracy, 
we need to emphasize tolerance of a broad range of preferences and go out of our way to accommodate that broad range of preferences uh, and not try to campaign so heavily for our own preferences. And I would have liked Jews to be more tolerant of, you know, attitudes held by Christians, by middle Americans, by the working class, by the deplorables, by, you know, the whole Trump camp of people with whom I have profound sympathy. You know, and I, you know, I'm one of these Jews who actually understands their point of view and I sympathize with their point of view. And I think there ought to be room in our country for communities and places and institutions that vindicate and exemplify their point of view. So, you know, I don't know what Kanye West actually said. I don't know the specifics of why everybody's piling on. But, you know, to the extent that he might be critical of the way that Jews have used their outsized influence in finance in, in, um, and not just in journalism and not just in the universities, but also, of course, they're a very wealthy group of people. So they are active in philanthropy as well. To the extent that he might be critical of, of what's happening, I, I can't be entirely, you know, I'm, I'm more in the sympathy to Kanye West camp probably than I am in the, he's an awful person, he should be marginalized, he should be persecuted and drummed out of polite society camp, right? First of all, I don't believe in drumming people out of polite society because they have opinions that others don't approve of. I think that's very anti-democratic, it's terrible for our system. Our system really depends on grudging tolerance, that concept, so out of fashion, right, for people who disagree with us. Uh, I mean, you know, I don't know, once again, exactly what he said, maybe you can tell me, um, but I think that there are grounds to criticize Jews in America and, and what they, you know, what they have done. I think there are grounds for criticism, frankly. Yeah, I think, um, I, I, to be honest, I've, I've only just kind of skimmed the headlines. I don't know exactly what he said. I know there is an, an eight-hour podcast with Lex Friedman, if you'd really want to go deep into exactly what he thinks about this. Um, but uh, it's, uh, I think essentially he just, he just mentioned, you know, the unmentionable the fact that, you know, the, the, the over-representation and people kind of deduce that, you know, he, he was uh, very, very much. I mean, it's glaring us in the face. You know, I love, I love where people just want to deny you know, what is uh, overtly obvious. This is, this is the, you know, you can't notice, no noticing uh, yeah. tyranny, which is a form of tyranny. I mean, it's really uh, a, 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 it's ridiculous. You know, you, you, it is wrong to say to people, you cannot talk about what's in front of your very eyes. And this is happening all over the place, right? It certainly happens on um, on race, topics related to race. You can't notice that the vast majority of black children are born out of wedlock. You can't notice that black men are AWOL, you know, as fathers and husbands. You can't mention that stuff. Uh, you can't talk about that stuff. You can't talk about black criminality. That's just racism. Everything gets labeled. Once it's labeled racism or anti-Semitism or whatever, it's over. And I think we have to resist that. You know, people, have, I have been called a racist. I lost count of how many times I've been called a racist. And my view at this point is, 
you know, being a racist is an honorific. <laughs> I mean, to be called a racist means you notice reality. And to me, that's a positive thing, not a negative thing. That's that's an occasion for praise and admiration. Uh, yeah. Being called a reactionary, I tell my students, if you're called a reactionary, you should be proud. There are ways in which we would do well to react and go back to the way things used to be done. Uh, so don't be afraid of the word reactionary. Uh, I think so many evils are committed through our fear of being labeled racist, being labeled anti-Semitic. You know, that's the worst thing that can happen to you. No, it's not the worst thing that can happen to you. Right? Just punch right on through it uh, and talk about what you observe. Maybe you'll be wrong some of the time, but other times you'll be right. Yeah. I, I really want to thank you, Amy, because I mean, I'm sure you're a bit on the on one end of the spectrum of disagreeableness. And by that, you're pretty rare, especially in the, in the realm of women. But uh, yeah, thank you for. for... My, my children tell me I get a zero for agreeableness. Oh, you did so the test. born that way. <laughs> yeah, well, that's that's <laughs> fine. You know, we, you know, uh, everyone is welcome. <laughs> But uh, yeah, I, I really do thank you for just uh, for standing up for, for all of this, you know, and for being so honest, you know, you know, like we had the discussion about, you know, anti-Semitism, you know, you're Jewish. The fact that you can, you know, speak about this stuff, you know, is really testament to the fact that, you, you know, you really are there for truth and you don't mind, you know, telling it like it is. Uh, and that's that's well, wonderful. I would like Jews to talk about it more among themselves. I think, you know, cutting off these discussions is not healthy just as blacks need to discuss among themselves, you know, their problems, their dysfunctions, what they can do about it, you know, what they can't do about it. These, these are healthy discussions that are not taking place. They're certainly not taking place at the university level, I'll tell you that. Um, so there's this kind of gray pall that has descended uh, on our universities to, to, as a result of, of all the, this rhetoric and these restrictions. Yes, and and among women as well. I mean, uh, you said you yeah. know race is more important than gender, but I think there's no, there's something no, to. It. I think a gender women ha need to have these discussions uh, also. Uh, when I hear the attitudes, some of the attitudes voiced by my female students, it really uh, I find it alarming. Um, you know that if you say you want to get married or have children, that that's somehow a sign of weakness. Uh, where did you get that idea? You know, disabuse yourself of that um, bad stuff that that never gets talked about. And um, I know we're coming up on time here, and I just want to ask you the last question. Everyone gets this question. Uh, it's um, do you have a subversive thinker in the spirit of the show that you would recommend that people read about or look into someone that might be influential in your life, uh, but that you think is underrated? Ah, uh, well, <laughs> I would, I would give, uh, let me give a couple of answers. I'm going to give three. One is a guy named James Fitzjames Stephen, who was a, a late 19th century jurist and criminal law expert. Uh, he was part of the colonial government in India. He occupied various positions in, um, in Britain. It was, knew uh, a lot of the elites. He was, I think, the uncle of, um, Virginia Woolf. Uh, and he has written a book. He wrote a book called um, Liberty, Equality, Fraternity. 
which is a extended critique of John Stuart Mill's On Liberty and On the Subjection of Women, uh, which, of course, Mill's material is our, or used to be our Bible for liberal uh, thought and liberal America. Now, of course, we've moved on to progressivism. So a lot of what Mill said is now discredited, uh, but not for the reasons that James Fitzjames uh, puts forward. But anyway, that book is a wonderful book. My son put me onto that book, uh, and I think everyone should read it. Um, James Burnham, who is a mid-20th century conservative, uh, wrote a book called The Suicide of the West. There have been subsequent versions of Suicide of the West since then, but that was kind of the original The Suicide of the West. Uh, and that is a book that my students really love uh, and is well worth reading. And the third person, and this one is going to be the most controversial, absolutely, is Jared Taylor of American Renaissance. And by commending his uh, writings to people, I am not saying I agree with absolutely everything he says, because in all honesty, uh, actually, we have our differences, he and I. Um, but I agree with some of what he says. Uh, and I think that uh, if you want to understand the far right and where they're coming from and question them intelligently, okay, and challenge them intelligently, uh, you need to understand what they're saying. And that I think we don't have at all, because when people are shunned, obviously no one bothers to read what they have to say. No one bothers to grapple with it. No one bothers to understand it and develop a intelligent response to it. Um, so I would recommend th those three people if a student is interested in, or just ordinary adults are interested in educating themselves. Excellent. Um, James Burnham has been, been recommended on this podcast many, many times. People, people Is that know. true? Yes, I'm not absolutely. the only one. Who, yes, yes. We, I'm a James Burnham fan. <laughs> yes. He's a he's a big uh, yeah a big figure in the so called new new right dissident right deep yes. right whatever yeah. you want to, to to call it but yeah very very prescient um, thank you so much Amy this has been sure. lovely um, I'm I'm delighted that you came on um, and I I wish you a lot more energy and and power and patience with all all of the battles that you you have in front of you and and hopefully they you'll you'll come out on the side of um, on the right side of history. But this time, right. the real one. Well, you certainly <laughs> have given my institution yet more fodder for faulting me. So that <laughs> I'm sorry. This will be under a paywall for at least a few weeks. So if okay, I'll give well, you a, good, a bit of uh, <laughs> before they insinuate themselves in and and start to lift the sound bites, which is their want. Yeah, I'm I'm sorry, but also thank you for coming on. Um, well, thank you for having me. If you like what you're hearing want to see where I take it, and maybe want early access to episodes, bonus episodes, access to the AMA, or you just want to support the cause of dissident speech or my work in general, head to my Patreon at patreon.com slash aksubversive. Your donations are what keeps the lights on and makes the show possible, so thank you. <laughs>